Welcome to Monday Night Live. Uh, my name is Derek Arden. I'm delighted to have so many live guests, so many of you watching this recording on YouTube and listening to this on the Negotiators podcast. Today's the 131st version of uh, Monday Night Live, and today I'm delighted to have Carl Walsh. Carl is uh, in his office in uh, Pasadena, north of uh, Los Angeles, and uh, I spent um, two sessions on his Oval Table podcast, which was a pleasure for me. I got to know Carl and Doug, his colleague, and we, uh, we connected and became friends. But however, I discovered that Carl had spent three years living in Bronsbury Road, Kilburn, which was just uh, about a mile from the school I went to, and uh, which was very interesting. Carl, you were actually studying at the, um, at the uh, Royal, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. I needed to get that right, not being a culture vulture. I needed to get that exactly right. And I think you were studying at UCLA when you saw the chance to become an actor and come across to the UK. Tell us about that. Well, actually, I was my major at UCLA was theater. And uh, one day I was walking through the halls and they had various bulletin boards where they would pin up announcements. And there was this stack that had been pinned. And I never went through those. But for some reason, this day on a whim, I, I went through them. And I saw that the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art was offering a one month workshop during, during the summer. Um, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I think I'd like to do that. And so I did. That was my first introduction, by the, by the way, to the British economy when uh, everything that I did was booked through, I believe they were called Richards. Travel agent, I uh, guess. Yeah, they were a huge uh, British travel company. And half, halfway through that month, the hotel informed me that uh, uh, I have to leave by the next morning because the company had gone bankrupt and I'll just have to find somewhere else to live. But uh, that's beside the point. The point is that I went to that workshop. I got to meet many of the directors and the, the instructors at the academy. And I decided this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be trained. And so I, the following spring, I went to New York and auditioned out of more than 2,000 people who auditioned, they came up with 21 people, three Americans. Yeah, three, three Americans. And um, I started my adventure in London when I moved to the glorious neighborhood of Kilburn. <laughs> well, congratulations. Uh, you made some good decisions. I think you chose the wrong time to join us in the UK when we had strikes, three-day week and everything else, but... Um, no, that was a great education. It was a tremendous education. And well, I'm I, pleased I, to advise yeah. you, the uh, the lights are still on in the UK, uh, Carl, and mm -hmm. I know you've been over several yeah. times since. Now, when you were over here doing this, you also uh, got a job at the National Theatre, I think, and you were running the front of the house in 1977 when it opened and you met, you told me, you shook hands with the queen, you met Sir Didn't Lawrence shake and... hands, 
didn't shake hands. We were we were on a line that oh. she, you know, walked walked by and observed you, uh, nodded. Okay. <laughs> um, you met Sir Lawrence Olivier, but you actually were assigned to look after Princess Margaret at the um, at the interval and ply her right. with whatever she wanted, and people can make up their own minds what you had to ply her with. <laughs> well, um, first of all, she was she was fun. Margaret was fun. She, or at least she was that that night, and she stayed for the whole show and stayed for the party afterwards in the in the theater, which was great. You know, we we really appreciated that. But during the interval, uh, my job was to take her to a room. It was like a conference room, and we had laid out for her finger sandwiches, which apparently she really liked and a nice bottle of whiskey, which she also really, really liked. Uh, and and I, I don't want to imply that she over-imbibed, she certainly did, did not, but uh, uh, she did have a sip and why not? Uh, but she, it was marvelous that she joined us that, that night and so many people like, like Lawrence Olivier joined us for the royal opening of, oh, and all of parliament and the House of Lords. That's it was only invited guests for for that evening. What was the show? Let's see. We were doing we were doing Tamerlane with Albert Finney in the Olivier Theater. And I think we were doing Blythe Spirit in the Littleton Theater. Okay, if I recall, a, that was an unfair question. We didn't uh, rehearse that one, did we? Just to give you uh, to give you time to. Um to think it through. <laughs> Good. And now, Carl, you went back, you went back to the US to become an actor, to make a lot of money, to be the uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier of the uh, United States of America. What happened? Well, actually, my inspiration was Peter O'Toole. Okay. And, 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 and in fact, you know, a funny story about that. I, I was seven years old when I saw Lawrence of Arabia, and that changed my, my life. It's what made me want to do this. My first day at the Royal Academy, I was walking around once the building was pretty much empty, just from room to room. I wanted to get the energy of the place and just soak up the ambiance. And I came to a room where there's a cabinet on the wall, just a little thin cabinet with doors. And I opened the doors and there's a parchment in there with a whole bunch of signatures. It, it turned out, I, I later found out this is the big award at the Royal Academy. And I went down the signatures and it was a who's who of British theatrical legends. And the one that really stood out for me, of course, was Peter O'Toole. I had no idea he had gone to the Royal Academy, but it was a wonderful moment for me where I finally realized, yes, I'm home. This is where I was meant to be. He started this and now here I am. <laughs> Fantastic. What an amazing, that, um, totally amazing experience. But it's hard work being an actor in Los Angeles, isn't it? And you, you found it hard work. I loved theater. I, I had at that time, and actually until Zoom came along, I've always had a problem with the camera. I hate that black eye. And so I was not destined for Hollywood. Uh, and also Hollywood was a really filthy business. It, it probably still is for, for all I know. For instance, I got cast through my manager she got the job for me to play Aleister Crowley in a film 
and they were doing it through different stages of his life. I was to play the young Aleister Crowley and Orson Welles was cast to play the older Aleister Crowley. And my manager got a phone call from the producer because in Hollywood, only the agent can do the contract. So my, my manager had passed the job on to my agent. The, the producer called my manager and said, listen, I don't want you to worry. Carl has, has the job. He's perfect. First of all, he looks just, just like him. And second of all, he's English trained. So we want him. And he said, I just wanted to let you know though that Carl's agent tried to sell me on a, on a different actor. Wow. Because, well, they would do that because they could get a higher price for yeah. that other actor, right? So uh, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for me as far as Hollywood went, that my own team would betray me like, like that. Um, so I stuck with, with theater. I and a few colleagues, we formed our own theater company in West Los Angeles called the 21st Street Theater Company. I directed the first production. It was a Christopher Hampton play, uh, the, the Philanthropist, which when I, <laughs> I, was, I, I was telling Derek this the other day, I produced the whole show for $450 that I borrowed. <laughs> And when I went to pay the royalties at Samuel French, because I could only pay one week at a time, that's how much money we had. Uh, they said, are you aware that this is the West Coast premiere of this play? And I said, no, I was not aware of that. And because of that, we got a lot of attention from the major newspapers here. It ended up being, fortunately, a howling success. The reviews were fantastic. Uh, and the theater was off and running. And from that point on, we worked entirely from the box office. We did not take donations. We, uh, we, we felt we had to, um, well, live off of our work. And for 10 years, we did that. Did a lot of pr productions. I did a lot of acting, directing. Uh, I was the artistic director. And it was, it was a tremendous experience, but it was there that I got interested in business. And that was quite a surprise to me. Much to my horror, I found that I loved business. And I could see that theater in LA was not going to get me anywhere. Before you move on to that, you told me a story, which is a fantastic learning point for all of us in business, that you mm. priced the tickets at $5, I think. Correct. And because it was $5, people thought there must have been something wrong with the show because the price was just too cheap. Exactly. They, they had read these wonderful reviews in the LA Times and uh, other papers. And so the phone began ringing for people to make reservations. They'd say, how much is it? $5? Five, oh, $5. What? Did, did you lose the cast? What, what, what happened? And that was a big lesson to us. As soon as the show, that show was over, uh, we raised our prices. And mm -hmm. what I learned is that if you undervalue yourself, so will your customers, so will your buyers. Absolutely. And, That's uh, a fantastic learning point for yeah. uh, all of us, people watching this, because uh, certainly I know the people I mentor and coach generally 
underpriced their services because of the imposter mm -hmm. syndrome and they don't feel confident enough yeah. in in pricing them right and don't uh, make their websites and their and their material look the business mm -hmm. yeah thanks for that story carl yeah. um, but you soon found yourself in watford didn't you well at the time i was working at the uh, at, at the theater company we only worked at nights so i had a day job in a record store, which was wonderful, which I absolutely was thrilled to show up to every day. I loved selling music. And this was for a large corporate entity. They had a, a, a whole lot of, lot of stores all, all over the West Coast. And I, was, I became sort of de facto the classical music expert for the Los Angeles area. And, and they had me go around to various stores and stock their stores properly in the, their classical sections because no one knew what they should put in there. So that, that was a great experience. And then they, they brought me into to the corporate world and that's where I got into to the IT field. It was the beginning of the PC revolution Nobody knew how to use the darn things. The, one day they threw one on my desk and said, make it talk. And so I did. And after about six months, they said, well, that's great. Now we want you to go through the whole company and get one of these on everybody's desk and teach them how to use it. And that was my entree into the IT world where I stayed <laughs> for the rest of, of, of my career. Well, after that, I went to CNR Clothiers, which was a men's clothing store. And then when they went bankrupt, I moved on to the Walt Disney Company. And this was another lesson I learned, which is when I was at CNR Clothiers, they decided to outsource the IT department. And I met with the people that I was supposed to be outsourced to. The idea was that I would be laid off on Friday and come back to work on Monday and continue as usual, just working for a different company, but doing exactly the same thing. And I met with them and I didn't like them. And I don't think they liked much, of, much about me either. And I, they were young. And I think they were a bit bent out of joint that I didn't have a computer science degree which who cared when it came down to actually making the machines run. And so on that Friday, when they handed me my layoff check, they said, well, we'll see you on Monday. And I said, oh, no, you won't. You just laid me off. And it was because I made that decision that I ended up at the Walt Disney Company and a whole new trajectory in my career. By the way, three weeks after that layoff, they were calling me up and asking me to please come back because these people had not been able to run the computers, they had not been, been able to print paychecks, had not been able <laughs> to print invoices. They couldn't make the computers do anything. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll come in and I'll teach somebody to do it. But I've been talking to Disney and I'm, I'm gonna hold out for that. And um, the Good rest was- history so that's how you ended up as european it director for uh well not it not not it director i don't want to elevate my, my myself oh, here come on, I was... carl you're not modest you're american i've been told that i'm not american <laughs> enough <laughs> no i was i was sent over to 
handle the store support for Europe, which was, and the uh, corporate headquarters for our European operations for the stores was in Watford. So I spent five months there. Uh, I, I would do four, it, it worked out to like four, four months in Watford, two weeks back in LA, four weeks in Watford, two weeks back in LA, that, that kind of thing. Okay. And the great thing about that is I learned a completely different way of doing business because Europeans do business different than we do. And so I ran into problems, for instance, British Telephone had done the communication wiring of the building. And one of the big problems that they were having was that they couldn't back up their systems on Sunday, which is when it was supposed to happen. Um, it, it just wouldn't work. So I spent several Sundays in there observing, trying to figure out what the problem was. I, I called BT and I said, look, uh, is it possible that you didn't use the correct cabling in this, in this building? Did you use Cat 3 rather than Cat 5? And they said, oh, no, it's all Cat 5. I said, huh, okay, well, I'll, I'll look elsewhere. Thank you. And I spent almost every Sunday in there trying to make that thing work. I was never able to, which was a huge dis disappointment to me. And, and, and I took it as a personal failure. About a month later, I found out BT showed up and said, oh, what do you know? We cabled the building incorrectly. Um, and so, uh, whoops. Uh, and then I told you about the case where we needed a, a few computers for our marketing division, just desktops. And be, Disney always worked with IBM because IBM is a park partner, which is that that means that they, they always have something installed in the in the amusement parks. So we dealt with Berlin for us for some reason, that's, that's where they were, they were located. And I called them up and said, well, you know, I, I need these, th these computers. And they said, great. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it to you. I said, great. When, when can I look for them? They said, maybe three, four months. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you have an alternative? Uh, I can't do three or four months. I, I may not even be here in three to four months. And they said, no, nope, I'm sorry, that's it. Well, as chance would have it, a gentleman walked into the office, well, a day or two later, I mean, it was almost simultaneous. And he had just opened a shop around the corner uh, where he sold PCs. And I said, and I told him what my requirements were. And he says, well, I can't get you IBM, but I can get you exactly what you want as far as the, you know, the guts of the thing. Uh, and he quoted a price to me, which was about mm, maybe 60% of the price of the IBM computers. And I said, well, fantastic. When can you get them to me? He said, would this afternoon be okay? I said, absolutely not. I'm busy. Tomorrow morning, nine o'clock sharp. And he was there. He was there. And he was my, my man for... Uh, the the rest of my time there and uh, and I think they continued to use him after I I left. Now I've said some bad things 
about how business was done in, in Europe in those days. Let me say something good, which I thought was ter terrific. This was back in the 90s. The green movement was already on. And we had to follow very strict procedures, which were not difficult to do, but we had to follow strict procedures to make sure that we were green and uh, environmentally safe and, and all of that, uh, which I thought was tremendous that they were doing it because we, we weren't doing it. We aren't doing it now. And when I looked into it further, because I was so fascinated by this, I realized that not only was going green not costing much money, it was creating whole industries and giving jobs to people. And that taught me a real lesson about the green movement. Uh, certainly it can be taken too far, but I thought what was going on in the 90s in Europe was fantastic. It was the right way to do it. You were, you were getting the job done, giving people jobs and creating a whole new industry, fantastic. Okay, Carl. Great. Let's move on. Um, let's move on to the next part. But I have to say, my wife and I bought our first house in Watford in Croxley Green for eleven thousand two hundred and fifty pounds. How the world's <laughs> changed since yeah. then. And it wasn't uh, in the nineteen fifties before someone uh, someone <laughs> suggests that uh, on the. Uh, and I did go and watch Watford play uh, quite a few times um, mm -hmm. at uh, Vicarage Road. And my uh, my kids were born in the hospital overlooks uh, Vicarage Road, but that's, uh, that's enough. Well, it's a me. wonderful town and a wonderful area. You're, you, you, you feel almost like you're, you're out in the country and the, the apartment that Disney put me in was in Northwood. So, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful area. No, Northwood, and, so in Middlesex. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit further, yeah. bit further South. Mm -hmm. um, now we had a set, we have a session on fraud. We had a session on fraud, three weeks ago, and we will be having more sex sessions on fraud, honesty, trust, trustworthy, etc. Mm -hmm. um, you got headhunted out of Disney, didn't you, by um, a liquor store with... Um, with uh, Well, a, a distributor. A They're... distributor with all right. over, mm -hmm. you know, the, to, uh, operated all over California and Hawaii. And um, you walked into, um, you walked into and discovered a fraud immediately and had to blow the whistle. Tell us about that. Well, we were brought in, it was a whole new IT department, and the person that I worked for at the record store company and at CNR Clothiers, uh, he called me and said, gee, I'd sure like to have you over, over here. I, 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 I need your skills. And so I did not want to leave Disney at all. In fact, it broke my heart the day I left. I, uh, when I was turning in my badge and, and all that, I was right on the brink of, of tears because I loved that, that company so much. But uh, this job was offering me about an 80% raise. So, you know, I kind of had to take it. So we went in there, we were setting up all new systems for the company. Uh, dis distribution systems, accounting systems, all of that. And the buyer, the main buyer for the company uh, was bringing in a secretary and he needed a computer for, for her, a desktop. I said, great, that was my, that was my budget. And so I, I said, great, I'll get that for him. And I got a call from him saying, no, 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 don't, 
don't don't worry about that, Carl. I'll get the computer. I said, well, it's comes out of my budget. Shouldn't I, you know, be the one getting it? And he says, no, no, don't don't worry about it. I'm a vice president. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so okay, fine. Well, I finally got the bill for the computer, and I'll tell you that desktop could have run the Pentagon, uh, and and it and it cost like it. And so right away I went, oh wait a second, I I smell a rat here. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Why would he do that? Unless he was just a complete idiot and and got sold by the but by the salesperson, which he was not. And so I brought that up to the CIO and we began looking at things. And as we put the systems in place, we realized that the systems they had been run, running on, certain holes in the system had been engineered in. And what we found basically was that the whole C-suite, all the um, uh, executives were on the take. They were, they were skimming money out of there. Well, we plugged the holes with our systems, which <laughs> made them furious, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the, and the chief of, of, of operations there went to the uh, owner and said, you know, these IT people, they, they really don't know what they're uh, doing. I don't know where you found them. And they cost too much. Uh, put put me in charge. I'll straighten them out. And so, <laughs> the the owner who didn't know how to run a business uh, put him in charge, and he basically turned the lights out, uh, 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 shut down the department because he he liked it better the way it was, which I'm sure he did. About a year and a half later, I heard that uh, they were on the brink of bankruptcy. Now, you have to un understand that the way the, the alcohol laws work in the United States, it creates a de facto, shall we say, a monopoly in your area. So you pretty much own the state you're in. So we owned California. We owned Hawaii. And you're selling alcohol. If, if anyone buying alcohol in a market, a bar, a restaurant, it came from our warehouse, right? That's a lot of money. And the profits on alcohol are huge. How do you go bankrupt with a monopoly? How does that work? And it, it happens through, through, through theft, of course. That's, that's exactly how it happens. And so... Um, that was a big lesson. Uh, and the reason I was sort of onto it is a previous company I had worked for went, did go bank, bankrupt. And it was because the owner was stealing too much money. He stole more than the company was, uh, could, could sustain. Uh, so I, I had seen it before. So there's a number, number of people on here who've uh, had to deal with that, including myself. And uh, mm -hmm. it's very interesting, isn't it? And uh, very stressful at the time as well oh yeah very yeah. stressful um now you um you run um the property company with your family you do the oval oval uh, oval table podcast which you kindly invited me on you you speak all over the also also gary and randall who are who are here they've been on the show as well fantastic and and in fact randall 
Randall's episode, which was very interesting, is still our number two most streamed episode. And yours, Derek, is still in the top five. Well, I'm uh, proud to be uh, in the top five. I need to, t- I need to <laughs> sort Randall out, don't I? He's smiling at me with his cowboy. cowboy yeah, I, I thought I'd get a little friendly competition going there. Yeah. yeah. Carl, <laughs> tell me, why is it called the, why is it called the Oval Table? Uh, because um, your president uh, was a naughty boy on it, or did you have other reasons? Well, the, the reason was round table is overused. Uh, thanks, thanks to yeah. King Arthur. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, if, if you do a search of podcasts, so many podcasts use round table in their, in, in their title. Now, what we were doing when we started this, we were working off of the principles that had been laid down by, by Douglas Bowers, a co-host, uh, and um, he has a book out, out as well. And the principles were that there are seven basic business personalities and you should have them sitting around the table. There we go. There it is. We are alpha dogs. There are basically seven different business principles when you're making important decisions in a business, those somebody representing each of those personalities, if you know, depending on the size of your company, but, but if you have it, they should be at that table. And there should be no one at the head. And it should be a place where everybody speaks freely. It should be a place where people can talk about what's wrong. Because they're the people in the trenches. They should know. They absolutely should know. And if you have a project that you want to create, you need their input on how to, how to do it. And each of these different personalities has input and information coming from a completely different area. And so when you put them all together, you tend to end up with a really solid plan. It's sort of something that we did at Disney, where every two weeks, we would have a meeting with all the departments. This was our, our meeting in IT all representatives from all the departments, we would talk about all these systems that we were developing. They were, on, they were on a list, on a prioritized list, and we would sit there and hammer out, okay, what's the most important thing we need to do? Now, what's number one? And we would prioritize with their agreement and their input and ownership. We um, uh, would then set that those priorities out. Now, some some things never reached number one. They they never got done, but the people understood why. They totally under, uh, understood that the company needs this now, and there might be an ancillary system. Well, we need this system now, and we need this in order to do that. So those are the ones that would get done. The result of that was that we never got blowback ever from the other departments because they understood what we were doing, they understood why, and they had been part of the decision-making process. And that's, that's a perfect example of our concept of an oval table Brilliant. in any business. Brilliant. 
Well, Carl, we're nearly come to the end of the interview. Um, I've just got a couple of slides that I want to share with the audience. <laughs> you probably don't want me to to share them. So let's uh, let's uh, see what uh, comes up on the comes up on the screen. I didn't do a very good job there. There's nothing on the screen now, so people need to. Uh, and uh, that there was you, I think, at the uh, Royal Academy of Arts. Um, right. Um, if you put, go to their website put, now. If you go to their website now and look up past <laughs> past graduates, that's me on their website. You clearly I, saw yourself as a superstar actor at that at that point. Well, um, I call that now my porno picture. Yes. That's, now, that's now it. everybody wants to know what you were doing here. Were you advising our prime minister on his speech uh, recently, or uh, what's that all about? Well, no, actually, this was at the Gielgud Theater. In the, in, in the West End in 2018. He was foreign minister at the time. I had followed his career since he was mayor of London, and I thought he was a tremendous character, a really interesting guy. And so at the interval, my wife and I, Vilma, uh, on, on the right there, uh, we went up to him and I just wanted to say hel hello and, and, and how interesting I found him. He, as I say, he, he was foreign minister at the time. I told him he should quit being, being a foreign minister and make a run at prime minister. No. <laughs> but two weeks later, he did, in, in fact, re resign as, um, as, as, as foreign minister. I can tell you right now, politics aside, uh, and I don't want to get into that, I'm, and, and I'm an American, I have no skin in the game, and I you know totally embrace that. But I will say he's a marvelous char character. He was so nice to, to us. Um, I kept trying to back off and give him his space, but he kept talking to us. And here's something that Susan Roan really gets, gets at and, and, and Patricia Fripp as well, which is when you're having a conversation, ask questions about the other person, make it about them. And that's precisely what he did. And he wanted to dig into my background, my time at the Royal Academy. He asked me what I do now. I, I said, I'm a professional speaker. And he said, oh, I wish I could do that. And I said, well, you do pretty well. You do pretty darn, darn well uh, as it is. And he's just a marvelous raconteur and a guy I would love to spend an evening at the pub with. Carl, thanks very much for that. Uh for that fascinating insight. Uh, will you stay on and answer a few more difficult questions that uh, I'm sure the audience have got for you when I switch the uh, sure. recording off? May that. I mention one more thing, Derek? Sure. And, and that's about the Queen. Um, at the royal opening of the National Theatre, it, it was the first time I saw her close up. And it was that night it was, and, and by the way, it was actually on my birthday too. <laughs> I thought it was awfully nice that the queen attended my birthday, but um, <laughs> I finally got it, what the monarchy is all about. And I, it clicked in. I went, oh, I get it. It doesn't matter who's the prime minister. It doesn't matter who parliament is, how much you love them, hate them, whatever. What you look towards is the queen. And that's the importance of the monarchy to me. I, I kind of wish we, we had one here. Now, of course, she has no legislative power or, or anything. But as an icon, as someone to look to as a symbol, 
she's fantastic. And I, I think it's a very valuable institution. I wish the family was better behaved, but hey, you look to the queen and um, uh, I, you know, I, I know there's probably large anti-royal um, family feelings, but as an institution, I think it's great. I, th I think you have something really special there that uh, is worth saving. I really do. Carl, thanks very much. Uh, we, I think that almost everybody respects the Queen in this country mm -hmm. totally for what she does. Um, we'll uh, face whatever we face after she's passed on. She's done a tremendous job and we're celebrating a mm -hmm. 70th anniversary of being on the throne this year, which is absolutely amazing. Carl Walsh, thanks for joining us. Can I ask everybody to give you the usual round of applause in the Monday night uh, live way? And uh, thanks for joining us. If you're, jo if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, please join us live. If you're listening to the Negotiators podcast, if you've got any questions, uh, uh, email me, contact Carl on LinkedIn and uh, see you next week. Thanks for joining me. <laughs>